Amen. It's kind of cool, guys. Um, I'll try not to just like verbally throw up all the interesting things I learned in Israel. But while we're singing those songs, I'm like, oh my gosh. I stood in a place where they would scribe these manuscripts of the Bible, and that doesn't even compare to who God is. It's just, it's, okay. I just have to say that. Blah, there's all the stuff I want to say, and we'll try to stay focused here during the talk. But um, So we were riding, though. I guess I will talk about it. Um, <laughs> we were riding on the bus. Um, Alec was there with me. Uh, so was David uh, from, I don't even know where we're going from, and to... But the people in the back started to sing happy Disney songs. And um, I was like towards the front. And they were having a blast doing it. And so um, I, I have a little bit of fear of missing out. And so I, I went back there and started to, to join in the singing with them because they were, missing, they were missing that fifth part of the harmony. You know, the like the really high piece, the falsetto. So they needed me for that. I got to serve that purpose. Um, but I thought about it because I like to play jokes that could potentially ruin things. But if it works, score. Um, kind of like the salt water today, actually. Um, so I thought it'd be funny to, to like enter into this uh, happy mood in the back and sing um, Be Prepared by uh, Scar from, from The Lion King. And so I pull it up on my phone. I'm like, guys, I want to sing a song. And Alec was there. And that song, that's a dark song. Um, and actually, it takes forever to get to the chorus. But you know the one I'm talking about? It's like, da, 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 like that. Okay. Um, some of you know it, uh, but it does. It takes forever to get to that song. And eventually, you get to the be prepared, like that piece of that song from The Lion King. I thought it was funny. Um, I think at least one or two others did, but um, it ended the singing for a little while. <laughs> but it's like, okay, what do we do now? Um, we're in a series called Light at the End of the Tunnel, and today is the second part of that series. Um, Lori McCrum, uh, one of my mentors and friends, uh, got to preach the first one last week. But I do have to be honest um, today about the sermon. It will sort of feel like Scar's theme song is playing in the background the whole time. <laughs> be prepared. Like that, that's kind of what it feels like to teach this section of Scripture. And so that's the way my mind works, to go, okay, it would feel like that song. I'm, I'm only uh, half joking, but the words that we'll look at from Jesus are difficult um, to hear, certainly, but uh, also difficult to know exactly how to apply them to ourselves today uh, for reasons that I'll share in a second. But um, as I move through this talk, and I'll reiterate it a couple of times, the thing that I think we're, we're meant to take with us from this, from where we sit, is to keep watch and be prepared, to be ready. And I'm sorry now if the whole album from The Lion King is going to be cycling through your head as I do the rest of the talk here. Uh, it might even through mine. Oh, I just can't. Remember that one? Yep. Sorry. It's in your head. You're stuck now. Uh, so I will try and resist more Lion King references, but... Uh, we're going to get into the text here today, and let me pray before we uh, get into some context. Uh, Lord, thanks again for uh, giving me the privilege to call this community my community, um, and to get to teach from your words as one who sits under it too. Um, 
wanting to eagerly learn what you have to say to me and to us today. So I pray that uh, you'll empower what I am going to share and um, that it will ultimately lead to hope, um, that it will lead us to a good place uh, and more trust in you. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you were here last week, you would have heard Pastor Lori talk about how the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. It was destroyed around 70 AD. And here's what the foundation of the temple looks like today. I actually got to take this video while I was there. Uh, These stones are huge. Um, One of them is around uh, 530 tons. And it's almost as big as this whole row of of, uh, bleachers, (laughs) of seats. Like that's stone that they carved to build this massive structure uh, that God would dwell in, that he would choose to dwell in under uh, Herod built this temple uh, for the Jews. And Jesus predicted, as we heard last week, he foresaw that this temple, this so important thing to the life of the Jews would be destroyed. And that rocks that are similar to that size would be tumbled over and that Jesus would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. It's one of the things that got him eventually killed. That he made such a blasphemous claim that the house of God would be destroyed. A lot more I want to say about that, but I'm going to hold off. The temple in Jerusalem was just, it was the crown jewel for the first century Jew. This was the center of their lives and the place that God chose to call home. And the idea that the temple would be destroyed was a devastating one to the life in the Jewish mind. So you can imagine, and Lori covered this a bit last week, that after Jesus made the statement about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt in three days, that the disciples had some questions. How is that even possible? How is it going to happen How's it going to be rebuilt? So that night, he took his, a small group of his disciples from the temple area over to a mountain called Mount of Olives, right across a, a valley right there, um, to have a conversation with them. And before I read the story, though, I'm going to give one more preface here. Jesus, what he says in part of what we covered last week, what we're going to talk about this week, and what we'll talk about next week, Uh, is largely Jesus equipping the disciples for an event that would happen in the immediate years to follow, the destruction of the temple. Even though the language here is very complicated, and it seems like Jesus is talking about something bigger, which I think in in part he is, and that will serve us in here in a little bit, but it it is important to remember that he's talking to them about an event that is going to happen in the near future. That's important because the text that we're going to talk about has had lots of different books and videos and stuff made about what Jesus could be talking about that I don't think he entirely is. You'll see. The Bible is written to us. It isn't written to us, but it is for us. So we have to carefully study it and interpret it and learn what it would have meant to the first disciples, and then see what what pushes through all of that to us sitting here today. So I'm going to try and do that the best that I can. 
So, let's read. Uh, verse 34, we did end last week with this, but Jesus says this. Truly, he's in that garden now having this conversation with them. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I just wanted to share that before I jump into my text for today because that, I think, frames it pretty clearly for us that Jesus is talking mostly about something that's going to happen in that generation of people. And the biggest thing being the destruction of the temple. So Jesus is ter- certainly talking about those events that would soon happen in their time. But let's keep going. Verse 36 says, But about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father knows. As, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying, assuming life is going to go on, and giving in marriage up to the day of Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of a house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in the household to give them their food at the proper time? It is good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that a servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servant and eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Crystal clear? (laughs) Got it? Understand everything? Um, This section of Scripture is the primary place where the idea of the rapture comes from. Has anybody ever heard that, that word before, the rapture? Um, it's uh, like from the, the books or the movies, the Left Behind series, you know, the, the Kirk Cameron version, or the newer version with the one and only Nicolas Cage, of course. Um, they're mostly based on this passage. Okay, good. It's gone. I was going to say, don't leave Nicolas Cage up there too long. It's going to be too distracting. We've already done the Lion King thing. We've we got to keep going here. But um, at some point, uh, the, the belief here, and you, you heard it there, like two men will be out in the field. One will be taken. One will stay. At some point, uh, Jesus will come back, according to the theology developed from this, and one person might be mowing their lawn, uh, and they're suddenly taken up to heaven, and while their neighbor might be left behind, mowing their lawn next door. I always used to think about that as a kid, and that idea kind of freaked me out. It's like, what if you're driving a car (laughs) and you're taken? Then I guess that car is going to slam into somewhere, right? Um, 
But what's interesting about that theological idea, and there's other scriptures that kind of point to it, but that's the, the primary one that that theology of like the rapture is, is taken from. Um, it's actually not an idea that was developed until like the 1830s AD. Um, before that, Christians didn't really believe in a rapture like that, that, that they, people would be caught up in the sky and all the Christians would be gone and then there'd just be the rest of the people here. It's not until the 1830s that that idea um, came to light. Um, and because a theological idea is new doesn't always mean that the idea is wrong. Fair enough, right? But it should be a little suspect if it's presented with something so big and so big of a new interpretation so late, with the generations of men and women that have been reading this text for hundreds of years for that idea to be brand new in the 1830s. I think as a whole, it's, it's wise for us to just go, well, why would it have taken so long for the body of Christ to see it if it wasn't until now? So I'm just going to show you my cards here right now. Uh, midway through this thing. Um, I don't think this passage is talking about a rapture. Um, I think it's mostly talking about the events, as I keep saying, that uh, would happen in the near future in the first century of Jerusalem, referring to the devastating destruction of their temple and everything that surrounded that. Um, Does anybody remember who would end up destroying the temple? What's the empire? Anybody? Rome, right? Uh, And when Rome would come in, they would destroy everything completely. So there was this uh, challenge, these uprisings from the Jews uh, around the 60s and uh, 80. And one of the ways that uh, Rome would show their power when they finally came in to destroy Jerusalem, the temple that we've been talking about, is they'd come and grab people at random and crucify them. So you might have two people in a field, for example. One might be taken and crucified and the other left. It kind of sounds like that's what Jesus is talking about there, right? The historian uh, Josephus says that people were essentially waiting, being held in lines, waiting for crosses to die on. This was a dark, dark period of time that Jesus on that Mountainside is trying to prepare his, the hearts of his disciples for this challenge that would come with the destruction of this temple and this tearing that would take place. So Jesus is preparing his disciples for the immediate events, not necessarily for something like the rapture where, where people, ha- just the Christians, would, would get raised into the sky and everybody else would stay here. But what I'm, what I'm going to say next, I hope, isn't too confusing to you. Because it sounds like what I'm saying is that Jesus is not going to come back. That's not what I'm saying. I think it's going to be a moment that is divine, much like we'll see in a minute. Sort of like a wedding day. Woven throughout what we just read and what we're going to read next, and what we'll talk about next week. I think Jesus is giving us hints, kind of like directions that he will return. And when that happened, that will be at a time and in a way, as we read, that no one but God the Father knows. 
You might hear me say it often here, that there's things in this life that um, injustices that are unresolved that grieve me, and I know they grieve you too, to go like, where is Jesus? <laughs> where is God? And, and some of that, maybe the church needs to step up, but there are such big chaotic issues in this life that God must be holding some justice for, some healing for. So I think the rest of Scripture does talk about that. So this story really, um, I'm going to give you a big term that I learned from my buddy. Uh, this story is, poly, I think, polyvalent. Can you say polyvalent? Um, meaning that it, it, yes, is talking about events that are about to happen, but I think it also teaches us to be on the watch for something that will be coming in the future, even though we would be foolish to try and determine what the details of Jesus coming back might be. It's like pointing towards both. Terrible events that would happen in the near future for them, and a day when Jesus will return to make all things new. So for the next story that is immediately a part of uh, Jesus' teaching on that mountainside. I think that Jesus is beginning to point his disciples' attention and ours today towards keeping watch and being ready for Jesus' return in all of its mystery. Not calculating the day or firmly having a, a view of exactly how Jesus is going to return. I think we're just intended to see that he will. So let me read that for you. Uh, this is the last story we'll have here. It says, um, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time coming. Doesn't it feel like a long time coming? And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there is not enough for both, of, both you and us. Instead, go to those who sell oil, buy, us, buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready to let him in to the banquet, and the doors were shut. Later, others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus starts to point, it's not even a start, all of Scripture kind of points to a day when God will culminate the, the human history, the story of the universe in victory and healing that I love the Bible uses in poetic language to be like a wedding day. And the church is often described as the bride of Christ. 
So this picture of Jesus, the groom, returning to culminate the story that God has been writing since the very beginning, it's still on the horizon for us. I know that might be confusing as I kind of tried to undo the rapture idea. I don't know what exactly the events of Jesus' return will entail. There's mystery to it that we would, we'd be good to have humble hearts and humble theology about. But it's clear that Jesus will come back someday. And I think it's actually okay and accurate for us to place ourselves in this story to be the ones who are keeping watch and being ready. I don't mean keeping watch by trying to predict the day that Jesus is going to come back. That would be foolish. I also don't mean being ready as isolating ourselves from the world so that we aren't tarnished by the, the brokenness of it. We'll talk about this a bit more next week, but Jesus is calling his church to build his kingdom on earth right now. He wants earth to look more like heaven, not a bunch of people standing around waiting just to fly away. When I visited the Mount of Olives, I noticed that there was a cemetery. There's a huge cemetery, um, thousands of uh, stones there um, on the side of that mountain that faces Jerusalem, um, almost one stacked on top of the other. It's just, it's crazy. That picture doesn't really do a justice. Um, I don't know the stories of all those people, obviously, but maybe some of them were buried there believing that there would be some sort of rapture in their lifetime, that, that uh, God would take them away from the trouble take them out of, pluck them out of it. And yet there the gravestones sit. The world is full of people who are looking for hope and are wondering why it's taking so long. Uh, here's a group uh, that was sitting at that same spot overlooking the city uh, of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, probably maybe reading some of the stories that we were reading today. So they sit, they read, they pray, they wonder, they cry out, when, Lord? And when you walk into Jerusalem, I don't have a picture or a video for this, but you can hear the Islamic call to prayer over the loudspeakers. It's the same sort of cry that you see. When you go into the inner part of the city, there's a, a place called the Wailing Wall where you can see Jews today praying at the base of the temple that we've been talking about that was destroyed. They're still crying out for their Messiah. And you can even see right there in one of the slots, this whole wall, anywhere there's a crack, there's a prayer shoved into it. Those are cries. Come, Lord, come. When, Lord, when? Or I got to visit a couple years ago a... Uh, uh, Buddhist temple in Thailand, and in it there's, there's a sort of like prayer mailbox. You can't see it very well, but um, right there are just a bunch of little drawers, and there was a thing that you would spin when you went in there, and whatever it, it landed on, that's what prayer mailbox you would open, and that essentially was the answer to your prayer that day. 
that's how the gods were communicating back to you. There were people bowing down to statues, crying out. It's the same cry. Wondering when hope will arrive. The world is full of people hoping and looking for something from above, asking when God will show up. But you already know that. Because I think you are probably one of those people. I don't know what's going on with you, but you might be crying out yourself too, wondering, wondering when Jesus is going to come and show up. Maybe you're even screaming out. You wish that God could just take you out of the situation that you're in. That you could just be taken away from the mess and hurt that you might have in your life. And I get it. I think that's why the idea of something called the rapture is so appealing, that finally we get to be taken away. Although I don't necessarily think or know that that particular event will happen that way. I think we do know this, though, my friends, that God hears our cries. He hears the cries of the people. And I believe with all of my being, you know, in some ways we get to be the answer to the cries of our neighbors. And that's beautiful. And I think we need to keep building the kingdom of heaven here in Wyoming. But I also do believe firmly with all my being, even though this text and what's coming uh, next week is mysterious, it still kind of points to something. And I think that thing is the return of Jesus. And when he does return, I think we can trust that something like this will happen for those who place their faith in Jesus, who are building the kingdom on earth. Those who are ready, it says this in Revelation 21, one of my favorite passages. There I go again. I always have a favorite passage. Uh, It says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is among the people, so God will come down again. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will, this is, hear this right now. If you've got a desperate, anguishing cry in your life right now, or if you just turn on the news and you see the world crying out, or the examples that I gave make you go, where the heck is Jesus? Where is this thing? I take so much hope in this promise that he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making all things new. That, I think, is the thing we need to anchor ourselves to, my friends. Not the method of how it might happen, but the fact that we can trust that God is going to make all things new and the victory is in the hands of Jesus. So whatever is making you cry today, 
whatever is causing you suffering today, whether it is in this life and it gets to be a preview of what's to come, or if God is storing up the healing for you when he comes back on that wedding day, he will wipe away the tears. And he hears your cry. So as we wait and wonder, as we cry out to God today, let's remember that Jesus has overcome death. He made us a promise and he will return to make all things new. He will heal all that's broken because God hears our cries. And in the waiting, let us keep watch for where God is already at work in the world. Let us enter into making the bride look beautiful for the grand wedding day. What does the beautiful bride of Christ look like? We'll talk about that next week. But for now, I just want you to know, God hears your cry. So keep watch and be ready. Because good news is on the way. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I know that this room and maybe even those watching online today carry heavy, heavy things. We're talking about temple stones. People may be carrying things that feel like they're crushing them like that. I pray amongst the tempt, amid the temptation that we might have to feel like all is lost, that we would trust you that although you were crushed and destroyed and killed on behalf of us, you rose. That by your spirit will rise from the ashes of defeat. That in our cry, Lord, you don't just leave us alone. You meet us in it. So I pray hope in Jesus' name for those listening. That as we look to where you might be and request and call and cry for you to come now. That you would meet us with hope. And that hope would be contagious to those around us who are also crying out for the same thing. Amen.